There will come a time, and I believe that that time may very well be less than 20 years away, when we get to be pretty good at repairing all of the types of damage that the body accumulates. And when that happens, we will see this enormous, spectacular, almost incalculable increase in life expectancy. That's Dr. Aubrey de Grey, Chief Science Officer at the SENS Research Foundation in Mountain View, California. What exactly might a spectacular increase in life expectancy actually look like? It's highly likely that someone alive today will live to a thousand. And that means that from a financial perspective and indeed pretty much every other perspective, Everything has to be completely rethought. A thousand years. That's a huge number. Living that long would take a lot of rethinking in any number of ways. But even if a thousand is a pipe dream, we do know that old age is changing right now, and it's changing really fast. The number of people in their 90s has almost tripled since 1980, and it's estimated that a quarter of all children born in the U.S. today could live to 100 or beyond. But while living longer can give us the chance to see more and do more, it also comes with important financial considerations. How will we finance those extra years of living? And what do rising health care costs mean for our quality of life in retirement? Welcome to the Merrill Perspectives podcast. I'm Candace Browning, head of B of A Merrill Lynch Global Research. And with me is Chris Heisey, Chief Investment Officer for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank. Hi, Candace. And we also have with us today Haim Israel, Head of Thematic Investing for B of A Merrill Lynch Global Research. Hello, Candice. Hello, Chris. Today, our topic is what we're calling surviving immortality. We'll look at some of the new technologies that are making living longer lives possible and improving the quality of life as we age. And we'll look at the financial implications of living longer and offer steps that you can take now to prepare for living to 90, 100, or perhaps even beyond. So, Haim, let's start with you. A thousand years? Really? Well, Candice, age is just a number. If we would have this conversation back in the 1900s, life expectancy was 31 years. In the 50s, it was 54 years. Now we are talking about 75 years, and in two years' time, already at 77. And that is before we started to use technology really to start impacting our life. Okay, well then, Haim and Chris, let's talk specifically about some of the medical breakthroughs that we're seeing right now that could move us actually further along that path towards immortality. Let's look at the genetics, for example. That's a great example. So if we had this conversation back in 2003, to have my genomic sequence and know everything about myself would cost $2.7 billion dollars it take 18 months, and the accuracy was roughly around 75%. Did you say $2.7 billion? Billion dollars to have your genomic sequence. I'm not sure your sequence is worth that. I'm positive it's not <laughs> worth it. Today, it would cost $100, it would take 50 minutes, and the accuracy will be 99%, and I can learn almost everything about myself. I can prepare for the future. 
I know how my body will react to different drugs, different treatments, different food, and different conditions. That is one big revolution that we are seeing right now. You have mentioned, Candice, that global data, medical data, is multiplying itself every 73 days. We did not have ways up until now to capture all this data and create treatments with it and create more advanced drugs with it. And I'm still not talking about long-term moonshots like nanotechnology, future drugs, blood infusion that we are all talking about. To answer the other question, Candace, we are switching from what used to just be a reactionary type of medicine, antibiotics, antidotes, if you will, vaccinations, etc., to personalized medicine and the ability to use, as Haim said, that data and directly target issues before they become something that you just can't deal with. 97% of all R&D in the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry today are going for treatment rather than prevention. 3% go on prevention. That has huge implication on lifestyle. You have mentioned antibiotics. Antibiotics is a great example for treatment, which does not prevent anything and is not personalized. We are all getting the same antibiotics. So personalization of drugs, once we know my DNA, once we know all of my condition can work. So I accept that because of these technologies and personalization that we're all going to live longer. But what about the quality of life? I mean, is our quality of life also going to improve as we age, or could it in fact be the opposite? Candice, did you know that we are wasting eight years of our life on diseases and bad medical conditions? Eight years of our life. So when we are talking about the next stage of of the next revolution of healthcare, about personalization and prevention, we can actually save eight years of our life living better. Chris, What are some of the potential effects on the economy of all of these older consumers? I mean, obviously they're spending on health care, but can you talk a little bit about some other sectors like travel, leisure, the housing market? If you play this out a little bit and you say people live longer, more active lives, perhaps with still the retirement age stuck at the mid-60s level, you're going to have a lot longer time on earth in your non-working life which opens up the possibility to travel, leisure, and entertainment even more than we're seeing today. So that's areas of potential investment. Certainly, infrastructure is going to have a very difficult time accepting all of this. So the movement towards smart cities is something that needs to happen at a more accelerated way. You could see the acceleration of autonomous vehicles. People age, they have to go to physical therapy, they want to get to the airport, etc. These are things that I think would actually advance autonomous vehicles going into the retail space. And Heim, are there sectors that you see that will be yeah, really impacted? Yeah, on top of what Chris said, the other thing which strikes me is that today, 90% of advertising dollars are aiming millennials and Gen Z. 10% aiming all the rest, including Gen X, all the silent generation and baby boomers. That's for me, is a big consumer opportunity that has not been tapped up until now. Second point is retired communities, as Chris says, infrastructure will have to have massive investments. Telemedicine, which we think could be a fascinating concept going forward. Leisure is, of course, a big one. If we live better, we'll expand more. If we'll have the right advertising tool approaching them, this is a generation that will definitely increase spending. So it sounds like living to 150 or beyond is a real possibility. But do all of us really want to live that long? We asked a few folks on the street, and here's what they told us. Yes, because life is beautiful, so I would definitely 
like to live longer. What's the upside of living that long? I mean, you hopefully can make a contribution and, you know, enjoying life, right? I'd like to see how the world changes from when I was young. I don't think I'd want to live to 150 because, I don't know, I don't know if I'd want to see how the world is in the future. I don't want to be that old. I'd rather live to like 90 and appreciate life than have somebody bathe me and take care of me. That's not cool to me. No. Why not? The aging. <laughs> Living in a 150-year-old body. So people are mixed, obviously, in their enthusiasm for extreme old age. But the possibility of living to be 150 raises some key questions, one of the most important being, can we afford to live to 150? Chris, how are we going to pay for all of this? So, Kenneth, some propose that we have to change the retirement age, raise it pretty dramatically. Right now it's 65, and life expectancy in the mid-70s, that's a 10-year gap. If we live to 150, is the retirement age going to be 125? Not so sure about that, but still higher than what it is today. Second thing that's very controversial is means testing as it relates to whether or not you actually need that stipend, if you will, by the government. That's something that's going to be a lot more controversial than raising the retirement age. And then last but not least, private retirement accounts is something that comes and goes. And today we have IRAs and 401ks to help with that. But what happens if you were born into this world today with a Social Security number and you automatically received a private investment account, quasi-private-public-led investment. That's an area that you could capture the power of compounding to pay for future liabilities. I completely agree with Chris. Let's put some numbers on it. Today, the current worldwide pension deficit stands on $25 trillion. $25 trillion, and that's the current life expectancy. If we are talking about going up to 100, you can imagine the numbers. Every year that life expectancy goes up, the current deficit goes up by $1 trillion. How will we pay for that? Yes, our pension will have to start thinking about the pension. The job market will have to change, and the education market will have to change. Japan actually completely reshoveled the work market because they have a much elder population that elderly people will be able to integrate back into the real economy. So governments will have to be part of the solution, and it's going to be up to us as well. And we also know that technology is making huge advances in helping us to live better and more fulfilling lives as we age. We work a lot with Joe Coughlin at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Age Lab to help us think through things like this. Let's hear his thinking on the role technology is playing in helping us to live longer and better lives. We believe that technology is converging with the longevity economy to create a whole new life tomorrow. Imagine an AI algorithm, a mathematical tool that is being able to collect information around the house. We have robots here in the lab that are social bots to keep you company for that vast number of people that are suffering from social isolation. For those who are craftsmen and trade workers and whatnot, exoskeletal systems or new robotic systems going into manufacturing will help what is now considered an older worker, in many cases in their 50s, to be able to stay on the line longer, safer and efficiently. So the fact of the matter is, is that technology advances are converging at a brilliant time of longevity to not just create new markets for products, services, and experiences, but to help us all live longer and better. So Chris and Heim, let's talk some more about how big data and artificial intelligence and other high-tech areas are transforming our notions of aging. And does this whole idea of also smart cities that both of you follow factor in here? 
So yes, definitely we will see technology being used by us to improve life quality and life expectancy prediction. I think that's one important thing that actually technology will bring out to us. How can we predict future pandemics, future situations? If we can predict and better plan for the future by using AI and big data technology, we can definitely help to create a better life and longer life altogether. Yeah, I think that's a great point. In terms of just technology, you mentioned wearables. We talked about smart cities a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about climate and climate patterns. With climate patterns evolving, what happens if the aging society can't move away from areas where there's more fires or move away from the flooding capabilities? A lot of them are in areas right now that are coastal. So we have to think through all this and enable technology to allow greater mobility as people age not to go to nicer places, but to make sure we keep them away from areas where climate patterns are changing rapidly. That's a great point, Chris. There's one more element which we are forgetting, and that's the emotional element of aging. And remember that your health span is not just determined by what do I eat, but also how do I feel. And I think that's also a sector that has to be addressed if it's psychological, if it's consulting, if it's a lot of things which doesn't necessarily have to do with traditional technology. Okay, so we've been talking for the most part about medical advances and new tools and technologies that could make our lives both easier and healthier. But I guess, Chris, that also begs the question, you know, who's going to pay for all of this? I mean, these therapies cannot be cheap. And I worry that there's a risk that some people can afford it and they'll have access to it, but maybe others won't. Yeah, it's a, it's a real issue. And the most effective way in any new advancement, which is high cost, to pay for it in the out years is to make sure that high cost comes down. The solar panel industry is a very good example of that. Very high cost to start off with, and the cost curve is coming down. In this case, the cost curve in healthcare, a lot of it has to do with the digitalization of records. The more those things are advanced and the more we have connectivity amongst specialists in hospitals, et cetera, the cost curve should come down. So that's the good news. Having said all that, we have to take preventative measures at the government level and at the private sector level and use data the best way we can to predict where the cost curve is going to come down the fastest. And that lends itself to better utilization of resources, not just money, but certainly technological resources. It also is going to beg the question, what do we do in the regulatory environment to allow some of these advances to happen quicker so that cost curve can come down? I completely agree with you, Chris, and let me offer you a solution. The solution is actually going to come from the healthcare companies. 40% of all R&D of the drug companies is being wasted today. It's getting more and more expensive to develop each drug. So moving to big data analytics prediction, to take all this data that we are creating to and personalize drugs prevention, which is going to decrease dramatically the overall cost, I think will finance a lot of those those billions of billions of dollars that we are talking about. So I think a lot of it could be paid by lowering the cost curve, starting at the pharmaceutical companies and the healthcare industry. And that's just the development of drugs. You know, when I go to the doctor's office, I always see there's a lot of paper in the office. So there's also the digitization of how healthcare is delivered to patients, which should eventually, I would think, reduce costs as well. And let me offer you another interesting idea here. How about if I'm monitored 24-7 by wearable devices, by sensors and everything, and I'm getting the information, do I really need to go to the doctor? 
or can I upload all my information to a doctor that sits someplace else in the world completely? He's getting all the information. He doesn't need to do any kind of medical exam to me because he has the information of what's going on. Prescribe me a drug which is going to be 100% for me and can treat even online, even without seeing me, talking to me, communicating with me by email or by any other digital way, can treat way more people cheaply and effectively. Wow, that would be fabulous. I hope so. So the costs are real, and they clearly require some financial preparedness on our parts. And Chris, I do know, I have heard you, that starting to save early is part of the equation. But what about the actual way that we invest? Absolutely critical. Two ways to think about this. Today, a major portion of one's mindset about investing is just only investing. The integration of planning has to happen in a more assertive way. That's number one. What does planning mean? It's not just taxes. It's certainly not just allocation of assets and matching them up against liabilities. It's about future planning. It's about what your goals are. What are you actually trying to achieve in retirement, not just can I retire? And then secondarily, the mix of assets, in our view, are going to have to change. It is said that as you get older, you increase your fixed income allocation to garner some level of income to pay for retirement. Given everything we've described and given the optimistic nature of living longer around your lifestyle, it's quite likely that the equity mix is going to have to stay higher and, and potentially for some people go higher to pay for the active lifestyle that the new era of longevity is about to bring. Okay, well, we've covered a lot today, I think, and it's all been absolutely fascinating. So, Haim and Chris, what are the key takeaways for our listeners? This is happening. The revolution is here and now. So my key takeaway is that no matter if you're a Gen Z, a millennials, baby boomer, Gen X, doesn't matter. You need to think I am living to the year 100 and my financial planning, my overall, my reaction, my everything that I do in life has to be centered around that. Yeah, and I would say that every major disruption over the last few hundred years or since civilization has been around is initially viewed as a major risk. But if you flip it the other way, this is one of the greatest opportunity sets we will live through ever. And we need to take advantage of that. Of course, our lives are going to get disrupted. But in this case, it's a positive disruption. And that lends itself to much broader, much more fulfilling lifestyles. Haim and Chris, thank you so much for your insights. You've been listening to Merrill Perspectives. I'm Candace Browning, head of B of A Merrill Lynch Global Research. My co-hosts have been Chris Heisey, Chief Investment Officer for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank, and Haim Israel, Head of Thematic Investing for B of A Merrill Lynch Global Research. We hope listening to Merrill Perspectives inspires you to see your financial life in a new light. What would you like the power to do? You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to check out some of Bank of America's other original podcasts, like The World to Come, where we explore life in the future by talking with the visionaries of today. And That Made All the Difference, where we talk to people who have made a positive impact on the world 
about the moments that changed the course of their lives. For more insights into how we can help you pursue your financial goals, go to Merrill.com. Thanks again for joining us. This podcast was published on October 23rd, 2019. Any opinions or other information correspond to the date of this recording and are subject to change. The views expressed are not necessarily those of Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or any recommendation from any Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith entity to the listener. This material should be regarded as educational information on healthcare considerations and is not intended to provide specific healthcare advice. If you have questions regarding your particular situation, please contact your legal or tax advisor. The information is general in nature and is not intended to provide personal investment advice. The information does not take into account the specific investment objectives, financial situation, and particular needs of any specific person who may receive it. Investors should understand that statements regarding future prospects may not be realized. B of A Maryland Global Research is research produced by B of A Securities Inc., B of A S, and or one or more of its affiliates. B of A S is a registered broker-dealer, member SIPC, and wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation, B of A Corp. The Chief Investment Office, which provides investment strategies, due diligence, portfolio construction guidance, and wealth management solutions for global wealth and investment management, GWIM, clients, is part of the Investment Solutions Group, ISG, of GWIM, a division of B of A Corp. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, also referred to as MLPFNS or Merrill, makes available certain investment products sponsored, managed, distributed, or provided by companies that are affiliates of B of A Corp. MLPFNS is a registered broker-dealer, member SIPC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of B of A Corp. Bank of America Private Bank is a division of Bank of America NA, member FDIC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of B of A Corp. Investment products are not FDIC insured, are not bank guaranteed, and may lose value. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill, nor any of its affiliates, makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2019, Bank of America Corporation. All rights reserved.